everybody. Welcome to the February 16th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the director of Denver's Housing and Opportunities for People Everywhere office resigning this week. Eric Sullivan was in, was in the position for a little more than a year, and, now, and the city is now looking for a chief housing officer to step in. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, there's more to this story than we can get into. You had a great piece in Westward about this. What do people need to know about the situation? Well, it could be the curse of Westward because we ran a cover story on Eric Sullivan and his five, the plan he was working on to um, help with housing issues, five-year plan. It's coming up before council to, um, next week, but it's already been watered down by people who are complaining. I think he's, he was really visionary, and interestingly, he resigned after they started looking for a housing officer and moving the HOPE office under Office of Economic Development. So I don't think this is a good sign for what's going to happen with affordable housing, which the Hancock administration has said six years to solve. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Affordable housing has been a uh, perennial topic around this table for a, a while, especially as we've seen Denver grow. Is this not a good sign coming out of the city government seeing this guy here for just over a year? It, it seems to be something of a pattern in, in the Hancock administration and, and the Hickenlooper administration before of having these big press conferences and we're going to have this huge thing like Hickenlooper was actually going to eliminate homelessness in Denver. You know, Mayor Hancock says we're not going to have any traffic deaths in Denver. And so these, these goals that are impossible, really, but with all of this fanfare that comes in and then as the process goes on, you don't seem to, to get very far. Um, Patty knows more of the in, inside story on, on this one, but I, I think it's another case of the administration having a, uh, a vision but not having the, uh, the capability uh, to advance towards it. Eric Sonneman, political analyst. Uh, Sullivan was hailed uh, over a year ago as this new guy from Philadelphia. It's going to be really innovative. And I would imagine if someone's going to come in and be really innovative, it's going to be able to take some risks and given, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, a, a long leash to do a lot of different things. Maybe that didn't work out so well in this last year. Yeah, I don't know if this is a consequence of sort of some infighting and bruised uh, egos and bruised uh, bureaucratic positions at City Hall. I don't know if it's more of a consequence of Michael Hancock starting to look, and to Patty's point, it's really closer to seven than six years for Hancock because, you know, re-election is now coming up in 15 months. Uh, and I think as Michael Hancock surveys the scene of where he is vulnerable, this issue, not just specifically housing, but more broadly defined gentrification uh, and everything that goes with it is probably, maybe along with traffic growth congestion, um, his soft spot, and I think they're trying to figure out how to get a grip on that in advance of a re-election campaign. Justine Sandoval, political activist, joins us, rounds up the panel. Uh, tackling housing and gentrification, the issues that Eric just brought up, is a tough job, tough job in Denver. It's a tough job anywhere, but specifically right now. There's a lot of heat around it. Do you think that may have contributed to the decision? Oh, absolutely. Um, being involved in a lot of the movements in uh, the city around gentrification, a lot of groups have sprung up and little neighborhood groups, larger groups have come together and everybody wants to talk about this. And right now, um, you know, we have had a lot of unsuccessful years with poor planning, uh, laughable amounts of 
you know, affordable housing showing up in the market. And I think that people are looking for someone to blame. And right now the mayor is the person that people are really going after. And so that is not a pleasurable job, I would think, to have right now in the city of Denver, especially with the climate going on around gentrification and housing. We have a really, really severe problem right now with affordable housing. And we keep having this discussion from, you know, one end where, you know, you have to be really, really poor, like under $17,000 for a two-person household to afford any of this new housing and, you know, make over 50000 to afford anything in Denver. Right now, we need to be talking about and focusing on people in the middle and how we solve that. And I just think that this job was just a big job. I make too much money for affordable housing. That's a, a neat problem, but it is certainly something Denver has. Let's get to it. A district court judge ruled on Wednesday that a portion of Amendment 71, which was passed in 2016, is unconstitutional. Judge William J. Martinez said that because there is a substantial difference in the registered voter population between Senate districts, Amendment 71 could violate the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Colorado Secretary of State Wayne Williams strongly responded to the decision, seeing that he supports Colorado voters who decisively passed this law. Patty, were you surprised to see the reaction from Secretary of State Williams and how he couched the decision? Not really, because elected officials, they will argue for their position. And in this case, Colorado voters did pass raise the bar, which really should have been called raise the bucks. And this 71 had two parts, and it's really important to notice that William Martinez has questions, and he'll, they have until March 9th to respond, but he has questions about one part. The first part was that you had to have more people vote. It should be harder to change the Constitution of Colorado. No one can really argue against that, because if you look at the Colorado Constitution, Colorado Constitution, there's a lot of strange stuff that has been voted in. So raise the bucks raised the level, number of people who had to vote in an election to, to change things constitutionally to 55%. I think that's fine. The judge thought that was fine. We could have gone higher, made it, make it harder for all the voters. But the other part of 71 that was problematic is it changed it so rather than a re regular petition process, you had to get 2% of the you had to be in all 35 counties getting the ballot. Senate districts. The, yeah, the Senate districts to be able to get on the ballot. And that's where the bucks come in, because it is very, very hard to go out. You've got to pay people or have a really grassroots cause to go out and get that many signatures in that many counties. And that's where the judge has problems, because it's supposed to be a one-person, one-vote system here in Colorado, and as we know from the redistricting fight that's going to come up right now, those 35 Senate districts are not equal. So we'll find out March 9th if the judge is going to put the whole thing on hold because of that. David, you are our esteemed lawyer at the table today. Uh, we have the 14th Amendment. We have um, the, a split decision between one half the amendment, one half the other, uh, equal protection clause. Tell us what we need to know about what we've heard so far. Well, uh, Patty was exactly right. The, and, of course, the, the, the purpose of, of Raise the Bucks, which was ultimately the money comes from oil and gas who didn't want anti, more anti-fracking initiatives, at least in a constitutional sense, on the ballot. And even the proponents of this, who were well-financed, good organization, ran a solid campaign, they couldn't even meet their own threshold. They couldn't get 2% of every of registered voters from every single one of the 35 state senate districts and if they can't with the oil and gas lobby behind them uh, i can guarantee you that there is no possibility that any any citizens uh... group or anything funded at less than the billionaire level uh... will would be able to comply administratively um, the judge's ruling comes out of 
a line of Supreme Court cases starting in the 1960s, as, as Patty said, based on the, the one-man, one-vote principle, which they said is part of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. Here, the, the biggest disparity is in uh, that one Senate, the Senate districts are equal in terms of total population, but somewhat different in terms of registered voters. So that means that the, the disparity on one end, in one district you could satisfy the 2% threshold with about 1,600 signatures, but in the furthest district at the other extreme, you would need 2,600. And the judge said that 60% variance violates uh, one man, one vote. It's, sort of, it's vote dilution um, that, that people are, are vic victimized by. The state pointed out there's nine other states that have something like this with some kind of geographical thing on, on putting things on the ballot. And the judge said, uh, yeah, that, that could be a problem for those other states too, but I reject the, the state's argument that the right of initiative is less important than the right to vote for candidates. Eric, uh, Dan Haley, a friend of this table, uh, when, back when he worked for uh, the Denver Post, now he runs COGA, uh, the Oil and Gas Association. If you're him, are you worried that the, uh, a major amendment that that, that uh, the whole lobby spent a lot of money to pass uh, is possibly going to get gutted? Sure, I'm worried. And, uh, you know, Dan was doing a very effective job of leading the uh, effort for the, the group he now represents, which is Colorado's oil and gas industry. Uh, I was opposed to this at the time. A lot of my friends and political and social circle felt otherwise. But I thought, I mean, to Patty's point about raise the bucks, you know, my phrase was different. It wasn't just raise the bar. I don't think there was any argument about raising the bar, as Patty pointed out, to put something in the state constitution. But this didn't just raise the bar. It put it on stilts. I called it raise, putting the bar on stilts. Uh, and as, as, as David commented, it makes it, if not impossible, virtually impossible uh, uh, to go that route. Um, I'm neither an attorney nor esteemed, so I, I don't want to really terribly uh, much co uh, comment on uh, the, the legal side of it. And I guess it comes down to the distinction between districts are drawn to represent population, but Amendment 71 requires distribution of voters, etc. Um, I think this is a setback for those who put it on the ballot. I think not only did they spend a lot of money in the process, but they spent a lot of political capital in the process. And I think the biggest question in my mind, short term, they're long term questions, and if this piece of it was overturned long term, I would not lose any sleep. Short term, what does it mean for the whole 2018 initiative process and a whole bunch of stuff that's being circulated out there? And if you're one of those circulators or you're one of those proponents, what set of rules are you playing under? And I think that needs to get clarified very quickly. Justine, do you think, I mean, we've been talking about the oil and gas people being disappointed because this was essentially the, the law they helped pass. Let's talk about the activists that are behind some ideas right now that might be buoyed by this decision saying, hey, I, I've got a shot. Maybe it's a short window, but I've got a shot to maybe amend the Constitution. The 55% voting threshold doesn't go away, and that's still significant. But not having to get 2% uh, registered voters in the Senate district that represents La Junta is just, uh, that I think would make it easier. Do you think their uh, activists this year are hopeful from this decision? Um, I think so. Well, I agree with everybody's analysis of this situation. As a grassroots organizer, we, you know, we're preparing to adapt to this, um, but definitely I think it does make it 
you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and how organizers will have to adapt because it is difficult collecting those signatures in each district and especially when, you know, it's a disproportionate amount of numbers that you have to get in one district versus another. It's difficult. It costs a lot of money and the ground game's hard. You bring in a lot of signatures, they get thrown out constantly. So I think that this will just be very, very interested. I'm very interested to see how this plays out as an organizer and to see how we have to adapt in the next year coming up. Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner announced this week that he plans to release a freeze he had placed on certain U.S. Department of Justice nominees. Gardner cited that he received assurances by Justice Department officials related to its handling of federal drug policy. David, what kind of assurances do you think Gardner received in order to pull back this freeze that got so many headlines a few weeks ago? I think, uh, the, well, the way he describes it, and that's the only side we know of these conversations, is very strong assurances. You know, when you, you're having these kind of showdowns in, in politics or in diplomacy, sometimes you don't always get the result that the, your adversary says, oh, I was wrong on everything, you know, thank you for, for coercing me into changing my mind. And so he wasn't going to get Jeff Sessions to say, oh, oops, I goofed, sorry, you, you win, Senator Gardner. But between the lines, at least the way Senator Gardner describes it, is this was a fairly... Uh, strong guarantees that he's gotten. He, he said uh, that, that as long as the federal priorities from the 2013 coal mem memorandum, memorandum are respected, like the state's working hard to prevent export uh, to states where it's not legal, things like that, um, that they are going to leave the state alone. And he said if the state, if the Department of Justice doesn't follow through on that, then it's a direct contradiction of what he was guaranteed, and he would take action again, which would lead to, to more holds on on more nominees, and he said he's likewise gotten the assurance that the acting U.S. Attorney, Bob Troyer, will continue to focus on people who are acting outside of Colorado's regulated system uh, rather than complying with Colorado law. So who knows if the DOJ will keep its promise, but it seems like he, Gardner got, got some good assurances in there. Eric, as you look at it, I usually have these questions that are very optimistic or very cynical. Did Gardner win a political game of chicken, or did he cave after the grandstanding headlines went away? I don't know. I don't know that any of us know. I think time will tell. David is somewhat correct in that, you know, Jeff Sessions isn't going to just throw in the towel or wave the white flag at surrender. Um, that's not how the game is played. But I don't know what prohibited Cory Gardner from being a little more explicit than he was in terms of talking about the nature of what he got in return. Senator Gardner's position, while forthright was probably unsustainable over the long haul, particularly from somebody in the party in control of the White House to uh, just forever and a day lock up those nominations. That was not a sustainable position to begin with. May have been some bluff move involved. So at some point there was going to have to be some give anyway in, in Cory Gardner's position. Time will tell what he got in return for that. I think the real sort of uh, sub-story to the whole thing here is the degree to which Donald Trump, no matter how controversial it was within a party, no matter how many never-Trumpers were out there and some remain, has really fully taken over the party. And if you look around at the most vocal Trump critics out there, particularly in the U.S. Senate, they're all lame ducks. They've all opted out. They're the Jeff Flakes, they're the Bob Corkers, and a few others. And Cory Gardner's trying to walk that line of not being a complete Trump disciple,
but still being a team player. And I think there was pressure on him here to get a little more on board the team. Justine, should Colorado's putt industry feel optimistic by this headline? Um, no. And it's, kind of, it's interesting because uh, this would, I, you know, I wonder what changed Corey Gardner's mind so quickly on this position. But it also puts him in a vulnerable position here in Colorado. Um, he's already not very popular amongst, you know, liberals in the state. But a lot of people in the pot industry, it's huge. And this is going to change his popularity in the state, wondering if he is going to protect marijuana laws here in Colorado, which whether we like it or not, it's very much part of the economy now. It's here to stay. So I think that this is an interesting move and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out amongst voters in Colorado and his popularity here. Petty, what do you think? The, the freeze, as, as he puts it, was a short one, but was it effective? Well, it might have been more effective than we know because it wasn't just that Jeff Sessions had gone back on his word uh, when he, Cory Gardner had asked him during his confirmation hearings if we'd, he would observe states' rights, and he said yes, and then the rescission of the Cole memo and t nine years' worth of federal, federal policy on not prosecuting in states that were following their own legal laws about marijuana. So Sessions not only went back on what he had said, but he also went back on what Trump had said during his campaign. And Trump said in his campaign that he would observe states' rights, and we haven't really heard anything from him to the contrary, so it's not, the word might have come to Cory Gardner, not just from justice. Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman announced this week a reversal of her decision to get on the primary ballot by petition, saying she will go through the caucus system next month. Kaufman, one of a large slate of GOP gubernatorial candidates, is one of the few to decide to go through the caucus system. Eric, and my math could be wrong on this one, uh, but it looks like her competition is going to be at the convention. Lou Gator, Stephen Barlock, and Greg Lopez. And with as much respect as I possibly can to give to those candidates, I'm a political junkie. I'm not sure I could pick them out of a crowd. So does she have a pretty good shot against this group if indeed this is who she's up against at the convention? Yeah, I mean, this is completely a function of Tom Tancredo getting out of the race. Tancredo was going to go through the caucus and assembly process. Cynthia Kaufman was worried that wasn't going to leave enough of the pie for her to be assured of a 30 percent uh, vote at the uh, state assembly and get a, a place on the ballot. Cynthia Kaufman strikes me as this interesting, almost anachronism. On paper, she looks like such a solid and formidable candidate. And then in reality, the parts don't quite all come together. She's been attorney general of this state now for, you know, three plus going on four years and has never really put together a substantial political operation, a first tier political team, a fundraising base that is necessary if you're going to aspire to be the gubernatorial candidate, you need that fundraising base. She doesn't have any of that infrastructure. There were questions uh, up until this move uh, as to whether uh, she could get on the ballot by petitions because she just doesn't have the money in the bank to, to pay the freight that it costs to go that route. You look at the competition here, the names you, you mentioned, Dominic, and you would think, well, it's easy. They have to vote for somebody, and, and Kaufman's the only credible one there. And I would assume she will get her 30 percent. But state assemblies are these crazy little test tubes where anything can happen when you throw, the, throw a few chemicals in there. Two years ago, we would have mentioned Daryl Glenn as one of those also-run candidates showing up at the state assembly, and yet he walked off with a uh, top-line designation of the assembly, won a four- or five-way primary, um, came within four points, but not that close of a four points, of beating Michael Bennett. 
Uh, so weird things can happen at a state assembly, but I'll leave it at that. But just Kaufman, somehow it doesn't all add up to me. She should be much more formidable than she is. Justine, a savvy move by the Kaufman campaign? Oh, absolutely. I think at this point, getting so close to caucus, it would be impossible to collect the signature. It would be very expensive. The ground game is difficult. I mean, on the Democratic side, I'm, I'm actually not even sure who's petitioning or caucusing on now, but I don't know. I've gotten like seven calls from Jared Polis this morning alone. So they've been on the ground, and they're still working hard. I know what it takes. So I think this is definitely as far as strategy goes, the right way for her to go about this, and definitely with name recognition, I don't see her having any problem getting 30% at caucus. Patty, uh, this, as Eric mentioned, this is the same assembly that gave us Daryl Glenn, uh, and who, who swept it. This was going to be, was it, was it a, a, a Tim Neville's nomination to, get, uh, to walk away with, be coordinated, and uh, Daryl Glenn took it right from him. Should Kaufman be worried, or does she have the advantage here? It's a smart move for her. When you talk about raise the bucks, petitioning is expensive. It's, it's expensive if you're trying to do initiatives. It's expensive if you're trying to run for um, a state office because, as you know from how many times you've been hit up in your neighborhood, I mean, there are only, you can only sign once if you want to actually not rig the election. And the first people out there with their paid petitioners are going to get the signatures first unless someone really has a lot of name recognition. But you still have to have the money, and I think Cynthia Kaufman went for it. She's got enough name recognition. Maybe she's got enough of a ground game out there that she'll be able to get through the caucus into the state, and she could catch fire. I mean, it certainly is a better, more logical position for her right now than spending the money to petition on. David, a smart move? Um, and a necessary one, too, for, for lack of money and, and time in part. But... Everybody I've heard from on the Republican or Democratic side seems to think she would be the strongest Republican in the general election. But then the, the question is, will she by then have built a campaign structure and organization, or will she just have to, to ride on whatever the party has? Uh, she is surprisingly weak organizationally at this point. Let's get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, start us off. Well, the sad disgrace that is coming out of Florida right now. The news that's coming, Colorado sadly set the tone for the modern massacres with the Columbine shootings 19 years ago now. And it doesn't look like our conversation about this has gotten any more effective or efficient. Um, we have, of course, the man who did this is mentally ill. I mean, how could you not be? But a mentally ill person with a slingshot is not going to kill 17 people, and that's going to be part of the ongoing discussion that this country has to have. You have to talk about guns. You have to talk about mental illness. You need to talk about both. David. Uh, the head of the Longmont Housing Authority resigned. He was the guy who uh, was behind illegal warrantless searches of the apartments of the people living in the, the housing authority and, you know, then was seen in a video mocking uh, the media award he'd gotten for bad conduct. Um, so I, I think that that's a positive change uh, in Longmont. Eric. Oh, as usual, there's so many uh, possibilities this week, but uh, I'll mention the president's budget that he proposed, which is probably dead on arrival anyway, and the president's budgets tend not to mean that much. But I think all of us can remember a day not that long ago when Republicans at least went through the pretense or gave lip service to the notion of balanced budgets. 
and talked about the ills of deficit spending. And yet here we have a Republican president proposing a budget that doesn't even get to balance within 10 years. And you really have two parties, both of whom have thrown in the towel here. Uh, I mean, my critique today is of, of Donald Trump and his budget, but both parties have thrown in the towel on this particular issue. I had lunch with a very good friend yesterday, and we talked about politics, and we said, if you are truly a fiscal conservative, whether you're a social liberal or not, but if you're a fiscal conservative and you don't like the idea of trillions of dollars of deficit, who can you vote for? And we were both befuddled. So I, uh, very well said. Justine. Um, this week will be the Denver City Council, minus Paul Lopez, who actually voted against it, but for the new zoning overlay in Rhino, um, while I agree that we do need more density in the city as we continue to grow, I just really have a problem with them not uh, consulting all of the community besides the Rhino Neighborhood Association on these issues, and I think that they should have not voted on this until there was more time and more input from all of the community. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty. Last week, I'm sorry to say, I mocked the Aurora Girl Scout troop that had pushed for the prudy pants driving, ba driving while smoking ban. I thought there'd be held to pay. <laughs> so far, okay. So this week, I'm going to say something nice about all those Girl Scouts out there selling cookies, my brother's bar that has stocked them, carrying on a 40-year-old tradition, which is great, but also the Girl Scouts in Centennial, Colorado, who have gone to the Holly Creek Retirement Home, where if you buy a box of cookies, they will train you on your iPhone. Wow, see, that's a nice trade. Train seniors on their iPhone. It's a great deal. I, I will double down on that. There is a Girl Scout in my neighborhood in Highlands Ranch that was out there in the snowstorm last weekend. That's a dedicated Girl Scout. I hope she sold a lot of cookies. David. At the University of Colorado Law School, the Federalist Society invited Jason Riley, a uh, writer for the Wall Street Journal, to give a speech. And some law students didn't like his point of view, so they did a silent protest in attendance by dressing in a particular way. And afterwards, uh, Riley thanked the University of Colorado and the critical students uh, because they were able to have respectful uh, discussion instead of the mobs and the riots and the things that characterize uh, places like UCAL Berkeley. So good for CU for free speech. Eric. Civility on a college campus? Yeah. There's absolutely no room for that. <laughs> I mean, I'm sh shocked here. Uh, some of the best words of springtime. You know springtime is coming. Pitchers and catchers report. That happened a couple days ago. Uh, the rest of the lineup uh, shows up for spring training on Monday. Baseball season is on the way. Hope springs eternal. Justine. Um, on a more serious note, I think just to all of the children across the United States who have been victims of gun violence, um, you know, and the fact that we have adults have failed to do better to do the right thing to pass laws to keep our children safer. I'm just thinking about them right now and especially in these days and times. That is all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. As always, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out check, uh, Take CIO wherever you go. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it. I also want to remind you, of course, of our Nerd Love campaign. That's right. This is one of the coolest T-shirts we've ever had. Go to CPT12.org right now. Become a member at $5 a month, and you get this super cool T-shirt. Go to CPT12.org for more details. And for everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. Thank you.